drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Hello and welcome. This is Drive-By Cinema, Season 3, Episode 51. 51, wow. Paul, nearly at the end of Season 3. Very much so, three years of this, uh, some might say, Sisyphean task. Uh, it looks like, in, in order to see the next Dune, we're going to have to be doing a Season 4. So I think that's locked in already. It's the podcast where we watch the movies so you don't have to, uh-huh. but... In many cases, you probably really want to. And you might have done with this movie. Paul, you actually came to The Big Smoke. Actually, this is the first time, after three seasons, the first time we actually watched one of our movies together Not at true. the same time. Oh. We watched the latest James Bond together. Did we? Yeah. Are you sure? We went to Trafford Centre Cinema. Ah, oh, okay. Well remembered. But apart from that, you're correct, yes. Larger correct. We had to go to see it in the correct. super large 70mm IMAX format, which was in, in the printworks. In Manchester, in, Manchester. in Manny, in old Manny, in old Gallagher's house. Manchester delivered a ton of rain. It did not stop it raining. Did. Continuous. Yeah, it Somewhat oppressive, but not particularly hard. Was it a downpour, was it? I don't know. The bottom of my jeans were wet, and I don't like that. I yes. find that. It was splish-bloshy. Very upsetting. It was rivulets in the tram lines kind of rain. But we did plenty to entertain ourselves, didn't we? We went to a Korean barbecue restaurant. So we wound up cooking raw meat on a on a heated hubcap. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Amazingly, I don't know where Richard put his bowl of rice. I don't think it was on his side of the table. But halfway through the meal, I, was, I had two bowls of rice. I'd eaten all Richard's rice. And I don't know how it happened. I, I, but I we only had one bowl of rice. I know, but we split it into two into two bowls, didn't we? Your bowl and my bowl. I, I don't think I ever put mine in a bowl because I had soup long after you'd finished your soup. Oh, so you but, just borrowed the communal bowl that the rest of the rice was left in and started eating from that? No, no, I scooped some out onto my plate. Ah. And then you took the communal bowl. So I never really double dipped in that sense. And you started eating from both your own bowl of rice <laughs> and the communal bowl. <laughs> so I never really double dipped, did I? You don't go for the rice, though, do you? You go for the you go for the meat. Yeah, the beautifully marinated meats of different, frankly, unidentifiable kinds. I don't know. What None it of it. I think we ascertained was liver or kidney, because I think I would have been sick if it was. It was delicious. In fact. And again, the constant problem with these restaurants, and again with Peking duck restaurants, is they never give you enough wraps. Now, in the Korean barbecue restaurant, the wrap is a, a, a piece of lettuce, isn't it? And they never give you enough. I mean, you don't need to eat these things with the lettuce wrap. I, do you? It kind of tastes nicer in the lettuce, though, doesn't it? It feels like more of a meal rather than it just does. putting meat on the hot plate and eating it a moment A disproportionate later. amount of meat on a hot plate, yeah. I would say there was over a pound of meat there, wasn't there, between the two of us. I want you to contrast the two tables on either side of us. On the left, <laughs> there was, I think, a Korean group who cheerfully put all of their meat at the same time yeah. on the barbecue straight away. They just cooked it all in one big pile yeah. of marinated, delicious meat. Whereas we, our technique was to take a single strip of whatever it was and cook it one piece at a time whilst we watched it cooking and then and then eat it and then cook the next bit. We didn't even put one bit on to let it cook whilst we were eating the first bit. We didn't even reach that level of efficiency. I don't know if you noticed that. No, we didn't. Now, you were saying this might be the reason why our hubcap charred and it had to be replaced. I don't think it was. I think it had to do with the gas supply in our canister. Now, next door, they were not a Korean family and i think they were i think they were barbecuing their kimchi did you notice that they were barbecuing their kimchi and also their white radish are you supposed to barbecue your kimchi I mean, you can do i hot kimchi it's never something i've done before but <laughs> no <laughs> I mean, you do have hot kimchi in like army stew and different recipes in korean korean food sure but yeah. not normally prepared on the barbecue or no you don't normally barbecue your kimchi no it's fair to no, say, but that still, it's it's a Western, them, isn't it? There's a like Western Buddhist way. technique they're employing there, isn't it? <laughs> After which, we learnt the art of shuffleboard. Yes, we did. 
It's, yeah. it's prompted it's cue me to research British bar games. Right. And what have you discovered? All kinds of things. Shove halfpenny, I told in the hole, bar billiards, bagatelle of course, which I incidentally been looking at in relation to pinball the week before. But. Shove halfpenny, I think you'll find. I think Shuffleboard, I think, is a US-based game, isn't it? Weird. It seems to have several provenances. But yeah, I mean, the modern version seems to be a US iteration of the whole thing. And I think the kind that we were playing on, because I was looking at their website, it has a curved table. Concave, yeah. Yeah, so, so that's how you get the curving shots, where you play it towards the edge and it curves back in. Yeah, not cheap those tables. The 24-footer is about £20,000. So. Yeah, but they last forever, Paul. Much no, you take custom do they bring in? You know. I was yeah, somewhat balking at the price of hiring the table, but now I've discovered the actual investment involved in the hardware. You know, it, it, it seems to be a reasonable price for the hour, doesn't it? And which one of us won? The shuffleboard? I can't remember. Yeah, I'm fairly sure I was winning toward the end. After we figured out, which is correct, that the winner should go first each time. Because it's a bit of a disadvantage, isn't it? It is a disadvantage to go first, yeah. Because you're leaving your stone there, and then the other person will get the last stone, or whatever you puck, whatever you call them. So you can obviously make good on the last throw. So, Shuffleboard recommended. It was good fun, wasn't it? It was very good fun, yeah. Followed by the movie in the IMAX. So I guess that means we should probably, unless you've got any corrections, Paul, we haven't addressed the issue of our normal inaccuracies, ineptitude. No, he's staring at me with dagger eyes. No, I'm trying to think. There was something I wanted to talk about, but I can't remember what it was. It doesn't matter. Let's move on to today's or this week's movie of choice. I actually think I won the last game, actually. I'm not sure. I think I did. <laughs> I think I did, actually. So, Paul, how yes. did you find sitting in row A at the front of a 70mm IMAX showing? Well, first of all, what is 60mm? What's 70mm IMAX? Does it affect the size of the viewing? No, it depends how far you put the projector back, surely. Yeah, but it affects the quality of the image, doesn't it? The sharpness. Right. How much it is blown up by will depend on whether you're not, you'll see the grains on the film. So a very large format film is going to be pin sharp. To the extent, while sat underneath a 40-foot high spherical lit dome to the extent you can establish spirit levels and plumb lines in that environment i would say that we seem to be significantly below the, the median horizon of the screen in yes <laughs> yeah we were right at the bottom underneath it yeah yeah that's the first thing to say so it did if you wanted to see the top of the screen because this was this was complete it was filling our vision wasn't it being so close I think normally IMAX is designed to fill what would be 120 or 140 degree. Is that right? You, you had to tilt your head way back. Yes. To see the top of the you couldn't see the entire screen all at once. Let's put it that way. Okay. No, you couldn't. So you, no, had, no, you had, had to, to make uh, an informed or, or, or maybe a gambling decision about which part of the screen to look at. <laughs> if you wanted to see eyebrows, if you wanted to see chin fluff, <laughs> right, it, with classic portraits. There was a lot of chin fluff, wasn't there? There was a lot of chin fluff. And, and strangely, yeah. the chin fluff seemed to be in better focus or higher definition than the eyebrows. Right, I will say that. <laughs> So that was the first decision, is where do you look? And if you wanted to look up, as you probably wanted to, and get most of the screen as opposed to look ahead and get the bottom of the screen, you were going to have to tilt your head backwards. So I didn't find it particularly uncomfortable, but that did involve sort of slouching down and sort of getting your back in a reclined posture. That wasn't a problem because we did have reclining seats. It would have been a problem for me given my height, but it wasn't given we had nice reclining seats. There and there was nobody in front of you, so you could stretch your legs out. The only thing, if this was a circus, the only thing that would have been in front of you was the crack of the whip of the ringmaster. We're right <laughs> on the edge of the action. So, yeah, so that was the first thing to say. I have to say, I don't know if it's because it was row A, the, the volume of the sound was actually really, 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 really turned up. You asked me about that. I told you it would be loud. It, it, it almost, like, when the explosions happened... 
almost like they were breaking decibel rules and stuff like that. But I think that's the clarity of the sound, isn't it, rather than the volume that makes it feel mm. that loud. Exactly. It's a dynamic range, and it's the kick of the bass as well in, in your seat, which was very effective. So not that too much of, to- of a torture. It can't be, because I fell asleep for some of the movie. I was going to come to that, Paul. I didn't want to yeah. embarrass you so much. But, yeah, you did. I, d- I didn't know the etiquette. We didn't have a prearranged thing. If I fall asleep, do wake me up. Well, I mean, most movies aren't 182 minutes long, are they, Richard? It was long. It was a long movie, no question. Over three hours, if you sit down. We haven't even said what the name of the movie is, of course. You know, because you downloaded the podcast, you've seen the name, you know what we said we were going to watch this week. We did go and see Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. Good. Yeah. Oh, I'm seeing now, 180 minutes long. So that, and the beers we'd have beforehand, which were considerable, I think. And the soju. And the soju, yes, which I forced upon you. So, Richard, how did you find the whole atmosphere? Was it comfortable for you? Not as comfortable as I was hoping. Oh. It might be the IMAX in the Trafford Centre where you do properly recline, and I found being in the front row was no problem. But here, it wasn't an electric recliner, was it? It was just... And no. it wasn't a full... It was a deck chair. It was chair. only a few degrees. It was a deck chair recliner. Yeah. So, yeah, it was difficult to see the whole screen. It was difficult to see the top of everyone's heads. But it didn't matter because they were doing a lot of lower head acting, weren't they? I think they'd been told probably to focus on the lower head <laughs> kind of area. Well, I mean, it was a lot of portraits. It was a lot of head-to-head discussion, wasn't it? I mean, it's not like there was any chase scenes in this movie, I don't think. Apparently, they have to use a lower format IMAX film for filming the dialogue scenes because you cannot record the sound because it's too loud, the IMAX camera, the big IMAX camera. It's too loud. So the dialogue scenes were filmed in a different format. Interestingly, according to IMDb that I was reading today. We should explain, for those who are not aware, Oppenheimer is the story of the invention of the atomic bomb by Julius Robert Oppenheimer and a team of scientists that he built to do this in the latter half of World War II. Mm -hmm. It's also the story of his treatment, particularly after the war, and how he was treated by the sort of security services and the government and the particular Mm. guy going for government office that had it in for him, really, according to the book that this film was based on, which is called American Prometheus. Which I haven't read. A guy called Kai Bird and another guy who sadly died of cancer during the I making see. of the movie. So you'd be right in thinking there are vague echoes of movies like Wild and Turin, yeah. Kind the of Imitation like, Game, you mean? Is that the name of the movie? The name of the movie about Turing. Turing yeah. is the Imitation Game. Oh, you, no, you're quite right, though. Alan Turing was the British equivalent, wasn't he? A yeah, hero. there is parallels there, aren't there? He definitely shortened the war. Arguably even more impactful in some senses than the atom bomb. Obviously, the atom bomb has had long-lasting consequences. But in terms of the war, one of the controversies about dropping the atom bomb on Japan, Germany had already surrendered. It's hypothesised that Japan was going to have to surrender. Well, it was going to have to surrender sooner or later. Yes, people were starving. It was on a sticky wicket, wasn't it? It was in, in a losing situation. The only question was how long they would hold out for and how many troops we'd have to expend forcing the issue. I think it came close to a zero-sum in some of the calculations, and therefore they said, well, Japanese civilians versus our troops, let's sacrifice the first rather than the latter. For the Americans, it was important for them. They developed this weapon. They wanted to show that they had this weapon. They wanted to establish themselves as being... Well, you know, we kind of make forests, don't we, into this sort of Cold War world that emerges later. And it, I think it was important at the end of the war for America to, to flex its muscles and show its branches to the Soviet Union, wasn't it? The film it tells a story in non-linear fashion, doesn't it? With multiple flashbacks. Yes, it does. Really impressive, by the way, the way they did the makeup to age the actors into the later scenes. Most definitely. So it was brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Because we are sitting again, like I've never seen a human face so big and so near. <laughs> yes. Uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s makeup I thought was really impressive in how they aged him. Yeah. Yeah. But but also Murphy's is it Killian or Cillian Murphy? Uh, let's call it Killian. 
Killian Murphy in the lead role, totally absorbed into the role of Oppenheimer. Looking very convincing. Very... I thought I was watching Oppenheimer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he looks a lot like him. Apparently, he, according to IMDb, he ate an almond a day to maintain his trim physique <laughs> during the filming. What? <laughs> yeah, I don't know whether he had like half an almond in the morning and the rest in the evening, or whether he just yammed it all in one go, like a greedy pig. Is it a birthday know. cake in the shape of an almond, perhaps, with some marzipan <laughs> around the edge to make it taste almondy? Packed with energy, though, isn't it? Nuts. So uh, yeah. it kept him going, wouldn't it? Well, I hope it was a big almond, like a prize winning almond. <laughs> so it, it is that it is nonlinear, but I think we join the movie at the beginning, don't we? When he's heading off to Cambridge, or pretty soon we head off to Cambridge. Is that right? Yeah, because Oppenheimer's career was that uh, he did his undergraduate stuff in the US. In the US, yeah. As a graduate, he goes to Cambridge. So actually, one of the things I noticed was. The scenes in Cambridge seem to have him doing more undergrad lab work, it looked like to me, didn't it? Whereas, uh, didn't, it, didn't you think? I mean, he was in a lab with a bunch of other students. That's how I think research, research, Might have been done. research was yeah. done back in the day. You know, Fair enough. Under Robert, uh, Patrick Blackett, who is a very exacting, somewhat demanding project leader, wasn't he, at Cambridge? And Oppenheimer was not happy in Cambridge. He, very unstable. He was homesick. He didn't much like it. He didn't like having to do experimental work, which Cambridge was big on. He was much more happy as a theoretician. And he was clumsy. I mean, they depict that in the film, that they knocking him test tubes over. And stuff. But luckily, a guiding fairy godmother comes to give a lecture that he always misses because of his, the exacting standards of his supervisor, Blackham. Niels Bohr comes all the way. I'm not sure if it's from Denmark or from Germany. I'm not sure where he was working at the time. To give a lecture. And we also see Oppenheimer, rather unwisely, attempt to poison his supervisor, Blackett, for making a missile lecture, or nearly missile lecture, by injecting an apple with some kind of poison. That's right. Again, uh, very reminiscent of the Turing story again, isn't it? Actually? It is really reminiscent. Anyway, so he asks the right kind of questions to Niels during the lecture that the other camera students don't ask. And Neil says, look, what are you doing amongst all these beakers and flasks? You need to get into the exciting stuff, which is the theory. Cambridge is not the place for you. Get over to Germany. I'll see if I can sort it out for you. The next day, of course, Niels is there in the laboratory about to eat the poisoned apple that was meant for, for Oppenheimer's supervisor. And he goes so, to Gottingham after this, doesn't he? An unstable character we were led to understand, I think, is the, is the idea of those first 10 minutes, isn't it? His parents were, I think, visiting the university at the time. I think they had to convince Cambridge not to take any disciplinary action for him attempting to kill his supervisor. <laughs> so he continues his PhD at Gottenheim, or is it Gottingen? I don't know. Gottingham, I think, isn't it? Where he meets the very famous Heisenberg. Heisenberg, yeah. After which, I think he returns to the US, doesn't he, as it's depicted goes back home. and to good old California. And he, he's really bringing the new quantum physics to the US. He is, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's Certainly a, that's how he put it. He's a pioneer. Maybe he's even more. Maybe he's a pathfinder. I mean, Oppenheimer is not shy at coming forward about his own abilities, is he? He's a very self-confident... I think uh, you did some research in the movie. You were saying he's a poet, a very terrible poet, all kinds of stuff during his youth. That, that didn't... Smack of narcissism and egotism, but it kind of spoke of a supreme confidence in one's own abilities, yeah. A lot of my information about Oppenheimer comes from a podcast recommended to me by frequent listener, and that's Andrew. Andrew. And he had suggested this podcast, The Rest is History, partly because I think he knows one or both of the hosts of that podcast. They'd done a podcast about Oppenheimer, and really, it follows the story of the book we mentioned, American Prometheus. And it's mm -hmm. quite clear from listening to the podcast that the film must sail very closely to the book. I do recommend The Rest is History. One thing I would say, though, The Rest is History, it's by a couple of historians. And one of them said something that made me double take, because one of them said something about... This is a rare occasion, I think you might have said, <laughs> in which science has been extremely impactful, you know, affected everyone's <laughs> lives. Oh, dear. Seems like a strangely historian kind of 
perspective on. Well, I think we hit on this to you know walking home from the movie. C.P. Snow, what is it? It's Tale of Two Cultures, or whatever. I know what it's, the, yes, this strange bifurcation of study in, in Anglo-American research endeavors, where it's almost cartoonish the caricature of personalities and that scientists and non-scientists have, and also the almost simplistic idea of the range and the scope of scientific and non-scientific endeavors. Very strange, really. You've it's got debated. Right. It's it's kind of give, taken as a truth that these these things are true. So I think one of the successful things about this film is it's a very faithful representation. I think of real scientists, albeit scientists at the very top of the game. I mean, but even a- so, I think in the Guardian review I read, it was like he's not a typical scientist. Like he's creative, and then later it's like he's creative, but he can't usually understand the ideas and emotions he's experiencing as a scientist. You know, there is this very this very strong idea that scientists one can't process emotions. Oh, really? Two. So, so you're reading reviews where they're interpreting it in that way, in that, in that sort sense, of tropey yeah. way. Yeah, I, that's not yeah. what I got from the film at all, because in some ways. I mean, Oppenheimer is a bit of an unusual character, right? By his own admission, he's, he says he's not very good at maths. Clearly, that's not true. You know, so does he does physics. He, he does physics at the very highest level. But it may well be true that it's not his big interest is doing the, the detailed maths uh-huh. work. Maybe, I don't know. He says he's not very good experimentally, but that's fine. Many of you physicists aren't. And he's obviously a little bit of a weird character in the sense that you know, he's got some very diverse interests. He's got a very co- complicated, nuanced personality. He's not easy to. He's a complete intellectual, isn't he? Yeah, he is. Yeah, Floor one, yeah. but a complete one. Uh, how many physicists does it take to change a light bulb? <laughs> I don't know. None. It's an engineer's job. Right. <laughs> okay. So, well, that's it. Arguably, we discussed this after the movie, didn't we? But the science of the atom bomb. H bomb, A bomb. By the way, but do we need a quick explainer on that? I think we do need some quick explainers, yeah. It's interesting, anyway. We didn't get very much science in this film, did, did okay, we? Okay, I'm, I'm jotting down these points that we need to approach towards the end, maybe. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> Amount of science. There. But you could say that the science around the A-bomb, around atomic bombs, nuclear bombs of all kinds, almost ends with Einstein's E equals MC squared. I mean, that's a gross oversimplification. There's a lot of detailed work to do. But really, the the theoretical underpinning is kind of done at that point. Does it depend the, on quantumicity or not? But the rest is engineering, right? The rest is almost trial and error. It's figuring out what works and what doesn't. Admittedly, okay, initially it wasn't clear to them that you could have a sustaining chain reaction, right? When they'd figured out you could split the atom, which I think was... Croft or Compton did first, I can't remember. But they did it by firing protons at lithium, I think. Well done. They're, they were able to split the atom sort of deliberately. But there was no mechanism there for it to sustain itself in a chain reaction. It was a discovery that if you get uranium, the neutrons that emerge when uranium splits well, could, in principle, split yeah. other uranium atoms. And that has the potential to cascade into a chain reaction. So and it leads to an important part of the movie where Oppenheimer is trying to think, is this going to lead to the end of the Earth? Is it going to lead to chain reactions and a heat event that will just wipe out the Earth? Well, they refer to it as igniting the atmosphere, don't they? Igniting the atmosphere. It's a bit, it's a bit misleading because what they actually mean by that is triggering fusion in the atmosphere. Yes, which would be a bit more than Cause yeah. all the hydrogen atoms in the, in the water in the atmosphere to start fusion, turn the, the atmosphere of the Earth into a small star. Nowadays, after many, many years of them promising a fusion reactor within 10 years... <laughs> it's every 10 years, isn't it? <laughs> 10 years' time, we're going to get a fusion reactor. It never is, yeah. yeah. We now know that a sustaining fusion reaction is going to require a great deal of pressure and temperature. And the atmosphere is just not the right conditions for it. Energy leaks out too quickly. Radiation leaks out too quickly in all different directions. There was never really any hope of it. But at the time, very cautiously, they were doing calculations to try and figure out whether this could happen. 
Which I think was only the one area of, if you like, scientific development, because there's not a lot of scientific breakthrough here, as Richard said. Most of the science was settled science at this point, wasn't it? But scientific breakthrough in terms of developing those ideas. We didn't, I mean, I think this way where the movie falls down, if you want to watch it in a scientific sense, is we never really get that team, the team excitement of whatever discoveries they made. It's always kind of viewed from afar, isn't it? It is yeah, announced yeah. in the movie, but it's almost like, oh, and by the way, Teller has just done this or that kind of thing in the movie, kind of thing. Well done, claps. And we never actually see the process. We're never taken in there into the into the Bunsen burner sort of field labor- laboratory, are we? In fact, what they were doing in the Manhattan Project was they ended up making two bombs, two different types of bomb. There was a uranium-based bomb, mm-hmm. and there was a plutonium-based bomb. Oh, we do get some exposition here, don't we? You do get a little bit. With at the one point, marbles and the jars, is that right? Yeah, they're explaining there how much they need of each. The critical thing is, <laughs> critical, is that in order to get a chain reaction going... Or a critical mass, yeah. Which is why we're just you, laughing. You need a certain amount of the material. You need to get the neutrons that are emerging from each splitting event. To be you need them to hit other atoms. Yes. And to do that... They need to pass through a certain amount of material, yeah. Exactly. You need enough stuff there in the in the same place. And actually in the in the right shape, which is usually going to be a sphere or something appro- approaching a sphere. So you need quite a bit more uranium than you do plutonium. And what we're talking about here as well is enriched uranium. You can mine uranium quite easily. There's plenty of it in certain It's everywhere, areas. yeah, and lots of parts of the Earth's crust, yeah. But you need a particular isotope of uranium. Now, where were they getting their enriched stuff from? Was it from the US or was it from elsewhere? I think this is one of the most interesting things about the project, and they don't mention it at all, really. But they built machines that could split uranium into its different isotopes and collect the heaviest ones. Some sort of centrifuge. I think that's the modern way of doing it. I think they may have started doing that. But again, they didn't really go into this, and it's a long time since I've looked into it. They would have different densities, though, wouldn't they, of some sort? They're chemically identical, right, because they're isotopes. Mm But obviously, I think it, what is it, 235 and 238? So there's like three neutrons weight difference per atom, which is just over an atomic weight difference of a, just over 1%, isn't it? Quite it's a lot, yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose it's quite a lot, but it's still tiny to do in an industrial scale. Right? Yeah. What they explained they were doing was using some kind of mass spectrometer thing where they were firing ions of uranium you and could do electrolytic rates of diffusion towards a very distant anode, a very distant cathode. And if you like, like chromatography, but not chromatography, chromatography by electrolysis kind of thing. Similarly, though, I think they were doing it with a spectrograph type thing. So they're firing ions of uranium in a magnetic field and the heavier that ones would make sense. Yeah, yeah, slightly yeah. less. And so you collect them in two different areas. But again, very slow, very slow. Which is the um, point they made. They said, we're not going to have enough uranium ever to, to get this bomb set off. Yeah, So, uh, and the way that they did get enough stuff, I think, is amazing. Now, the plutonium, plutonium is not naturally occurring. It only occurs through fission products of uranium. And again, initially, that was done through, like, cyclotrons and stuff. Later, they actually built a reactor the first reactor, the first nuclear pile, and they actually went and visited it in the film, didn't they? So that was interesting. And one of the jobs of that reactor was to make plutonium for the project. So, yeah, I mean, Oppenheim was a scientist. He became a team leader. I think we discussed this in the movies. Like, what did he do actually scientifically? Well, he coordinated this group and he led this group, didn't he? But, I mean, obviously, I think he had a, he shared a lot of joy in his science. And I think it's a failing, really, of Nolan, if I dare say this, this, this much. That we don't, I mean, we just talked about two really interesting processes here. That there must have been so much excitement when they got the results out of it. When they managed to yeah. farm plutonium and when they managed to separate and enrich the uranium. I mean, those must have been breakthrough moments of high-fiving, mustn't they? We don't get that in this movie, unfortunately. It is very much a political, politically intrigued-based movie, isn't it? A biography second, I think. Yeah, because it's focused quite a lot on the scandal of really them trying to smear Oppenheimer because he had left-leaning political connections, including mm-hmm. a wife that was a member of the Communist Party at one point. And a mistress who was was definitely him. Yeah, his brother, his wife, and his mistress, yeah. So pretty much everybody (laughs) in his life, yeah. 
Oppenheimer just moved in those political circles because he's liberal and educated and therefore has sophisticated political ideas. But his opponents, including the guy called Straws, spelt Strauss, who initially had employed him to set up a, a research institute in Princeton. Later, he's going for political office and really kind of smears Oppenheimer for his potential links to communist sympathisers. Now, apparently, uh, Nolan digs down quite deep into this. There's a repeated asynchronous non-linear timeline where Oppenheimer is speaking to Einstein and Strauss misunderstands that he's ba- he's being bad-mouthed by yes, Oppenheimer. Yeah. But actually, Oppenheimer is discussing the depths and the dangers of the nuclear development programme. And there's a misunderstanding. And it's on the basis of that resentment that Strauss does all that he does to Oppenheimer following the Second World War. Is that right? That's what we get from the movie, and presumably that's how mm. the book depicts it. Yeah. Right. Who knows, I guess... What was going on in Strauss's Strauss's mind? Strauss apparently called himself Strauss because he didn't want his Jewishness to be too obvious. <laughs> so although his name was spelt Strauss, yeah, you would you'd change the spelling, surely, wouldn't you? <laughs> so there is a, there's, there's an undercurrent of anti-Semitism explained and expressed, I think, in the movie. And running counter to that is the U.S. Army General Leslie Groves, who I think comes in the movie at this point, who is there essentially to recruit Oppenheimer to lead the Manhattan Project. Ultimately, Groves is a big defender of Oppenheimer's. Yes. And as the hearing goes on later on, he, he really does kind of stand up for him and says that he doesn't believe he was a traitor or uh, behaving treasonously in any way. But in a sense, Groves kind of represents the... Well, he represents the US Army's indifference to the science and the sensibilities of the project, doesn't he? Um, yeah. Oh, but he's, oh, he, I mean, he's classically American, the great silent generation. He's like, build them a, build them a new town. Get on with it. I want, I want a town for these guys to live in tomorrow kind of stuff. So he's very, well, apparently, you know, he had built the Pentagon. So that was what that's his previous right. He was an engineer, wasn't he? As Oppenheimer yeah. says. He says, Oppenheimer at one point says, I know you're no fool. I know you have some understanding of all this stuff because you've got a degree in engineering. Yeah. So... That's where he got his promotion from, from building a, a, an effective central pentagon. Yeah, yeah. But what I was going to say about the science is, the other interesting thing about the science is, th- so they're making these two different bomb designs because the uranium bomb had a much simpler design, but uranium required a bigger critical mass That's to right. work. The way that the uranium bomb works is you get two subcritical masses and you fire one into the other. Squish so it together, form yeah. one. And you do that with, like, a gun, effectively, like a cannon in the bomb. Quite often it's depicted as firing a core into, like, a donut. Very sexual, isn't it? Yes. But it was actually the other way around. They fired the kind of donut or cylinder-shaped thing, like a flashlight, I guess, a uranium flashlight, onto a uranium dildo that was stationary. And it was encased in a neutron reflector as well. So it's called a gun-type uranium bomb. All right. So that was their first development project, which we see very little of. Now, they came to want to use plutonium because they were getting plutonium from the reactor and plutonium was known to be more fissile, so they would need potentially less uh, of a critical mass. These critical masses, by the way, were one of the contributions that the British had to the Manhattan Project. Apart from stealing all the ideas and giving it to the Russians. <laughs> well done, Britain. The British bomb development programme was known as Tube Alloys. Tube Alloys, that was its code name. Mm. British scientists had worked out what the critical masses were. Quite a complex calculation, so it took quite a bit of effort to do that. We passed that information to the Americans because, especially mid to the end of the war, there was absolutely no hope of Britain financing and resourcing a project that could build a bomb, right? There's no way Britain could have done it. I mean, they said that they spent $2 billion on on the bomb, didn't they, in, in US terms? Mm-hmm. Can you imagine what Britain was... what the nation was like in the middle of the war? It would have been hopeless. Well, yeah, we didn't have the finances for this, did we? We didn't have the finances, the manpower, anything like that. And we didn't have reserves of uranium we could have mined. But we did have some expertise in refining the uranium. 
and we had made these calculations which we passed over and it was an understanding of what the critical masses were because before that Einstein and Zillard I think had written to Roosevelt and they'd said look this is the possibility there's a bomb that could be made but they hadn't done all these calculations they weren't sure and the kind of the rough estimates were that you'd need tons of material potentially Mm-hmm. So they were imagining something you could maybe put on a boat, send into a harbour of an enemy, and I detonate. See. Right. And it would be devastating, no doubt. But when they got the real figures for the critical masses, and it was like tens of kilograms, they realised you could make a bomb that you could put on an airplane. This was totally different league kind of stuff. So they're trying to make a new a plutonium bomb because they're making plutonium. And although they didn't have very much plutonium because... It doesn't exist naturally. It's more fissile, and you don't have to refine it to get the right isotope. But there are different isotopes of plutonium, and the stuff they were getting out of the reactor was so incredibly active and fissile that if you did a gun-type bomb with the plutonium and you tried to fire one subcritical mass against another... It reached criticality before it had locked into place. Exactly. It would, it, the reaction would start before it was properly compressed and you'd have what is de- determined as a fizzle. Effectively, so much heat would be generated, it would blow itself apart before oh. it properly compacts. A fizzle. That's what happens at Matt Locke's factory when they dump the, sh- the active sugar into the canals, isn't it? <laughs> oh, no, it's a swizzle stick. I think at this point, by law, middle-aged men discussing confectionery have to now mention spangles. Spangles and pacers. Here we go. Oh, the green. What were those green and white pastels called? Pacers, yes. <laughs> now we're going to go to rally choppers. Let's not go down that route. Okay. And space hoppers. We've done it all. Okay, we've done the whole tour of nostalgia. Sorry about that. My bad. It's just, it sounded like fizzles. It sounds like a matlock. Sweet. I'm sorry. And I imagine they do sometimes spill sugar into, their fizzy exploding sugar into the canal. Have you been yeah, past well, their factory uh, on the canal? It's beautiful. Which canal? It's the one that's below Manchester heading into Derbyshire and Cheshire, I think. Not sure right. which one it is. I don't know what that is, no. no. You're saying that Chubalos was the British was the British sort of sidearm to this whole development in, in cooperation with the Manhattan Project. And Fuchs, the traitor, was part of that. He actually I mean I think this is an opportunity missed, because we just hear through the grapevine in the movie that Fuchs is the traitor and they discovered him later because I think he confessed in 1950 doesn't he later on it's, it's in one of the post-war parts of the movie but I think what we could have counterplayed here or put in silhouette is Oppenheim's treatment and suspicion as a Jew despite being a completely loyal US subject which I think the general recognises doesn't he compared to Fuchs who again is a native German and Oppenheim was a native Swiss or his father was native Swiss. So Fuchs, if you like, was also an immigrant to the UK. And yet he wasn't suspected at all, was he? At all. No, he got, he got away with it, didn't he? Freely. And completely. Mostly, I think, because of his race, even despite the fact that Britain were at war with his race identity, the German people. But I, I think Fuchs's motivation was partly out of his communist sympathies, but also I think he clearly understood that an important thing about the bomb was that it needed both sides to have it. Mutually assured destruction. Yeah, yeah. Therein madness lies, surely. And again, of course, it was not his decision to take, was it? I don't think it was. I think I came down rather hard when I was drunk. (laughs) So, but you're right. We can see his motivation maybe wasn't as vain or as coarse or as base as you might imagine a spy to be. So, the plutonium thing then. They can't make a gun-type bomb out of plutonium. The idea was to take a sphere of plutonium that was of normal density and increase its density. Uh, Because another way of getting around the critical mass problem is an increased density will also increase the sort of reaction collision cross-section around it, and so you'll get a criticality event. But how do you increase the density of a plutonium sphere that is about as hard as steel? Well, the idea was to get explosives. Drop it to the Mariana Trench. (laughs) Does that actually change the size of sphere balls? Ball spheres? What you do is you get explosives all around your plutonium sphere. And if you get the mass just right, 
it will compress it to about half the volume, double the density, and give you a criticality. What, you get a shockwave? Yeah. Now, there was technology for shaped charges using explosives, and this idea of explosive lenses. We see it very briefly in the movie, and again, it's only elided over in the movie. The point is, you just need a half second of criticality, and then you've got the bomb. Exactly. Yeah. Or a quarter second, yeah. or a tenth of a second of criticality. But you see... You just need momentary criticality, don't you? You see them assembling that sphere with the kind of football, soccer ball kind of shape blocks. And Nolan doesn't really explain it. But again, we've explained why, because he's not focused on No, he's not. He's not. But I find it interesting. I find it interesting. Mm. Now, the mathematics required to create the, those explosives so that it would, they would create a perfect spherical compression wave were really complicated yeah and they had to go to i think they went to von neumann i think that's who who did it but it was another mathematician outside of the project i think who figured it all out and then it was down to the vagaries of making explosives in the right shapes and it was two types of explosive that had different explosion rates because you you needed that to focus it like a lens I see. Like, because it was like a refractive yes. index, you know. Makes sense, yeah. It's like a refractive index explosion. Isn't it? But the way they made explosives, they weren't necessarily perfect all the way through. They weren't 100% pure. They had to have air bubbles. So they had a guy who would drill into these explosive blocks, high X blocks, and fill the air bubbles with molten explosive <laughs> and then, like, seal them off again. They mention it briefly in the film, don't they? As they're about to do the Trinity test, which was one of these plutonium bombs. They mention just before they do it that the test firing of the shaped charges had failed because they'd found a way of using X-rays to see whether or not the compression wave was working or not. And that's what they were doing. They tested one of these configurations. So there were some amazing scientific breakthroughs in terms of practicalities of measuring effects yeah and the other thing is consider this trinity was a test firing of the plutonium implosion device hiroshima the first bomb dropped in the war was the uranium gun type bomb that had never been tested because they didn't have enough Whoa. uranium to do a test and then have it for the bomb but and on then, the basis of the plutonium working they said well if that works that's probably gonna it was supposed too. to be simpler yeah it was a simpler device and then nagasaki was the second plutonium implosion device but that's an amazing thing, right? They did it once with this plutonium device, and then when they actually come to drop it on Japan, never been tested. That was the first time the uranium bomb had ever been used. <laughs> so the Trinity sequence, I think, is uh, amazing visuals. Yeah. And you get a sense of real kind of epochal kind of on the cusp of things, that immediacy, that sense of urgency, that sense of moment. They're all stuck out in a desert, maybe commuting on dumper trucks or on the back of lorries. That complete openness to eventuality. I think that dawning of a new world is just so iconically and metaphorically represented in those moments of the explosion. Where they're rushing to put on sun lotion and stuff like this and jumping underneath mattresses. Feynman is sitting in one of the very few cars, private cars they were allowed in the Manhattan Project. Yeah. But it wasn't oh, fine. The engine might explode, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> he trusted the windscreen glass to protect him from the UV. That was slightly. That wasn't Feynman's car, though, although he used it frequently because his wife at the time was very sick. And he, That's right. he was allowed to leave Los Alamos regularly and he would take that car. That car was actually Fuchs's car. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Feynman, of course, apart from playing the bongos, which they do depict in the movie, spent a lot of his time... I think I fell asleep for that. <laughs> he spent a lot of his time in Los Alamos practising lockpicking, didn't he? Which you'd think would be a very dangerous thing to do in a top-secret military as, weapon. As a left-leaning Jewish <laughs> uh, intellectual, particularly. I think he was more accepted in the Anglo-Saxon fold, Feynman, wasn't he? He was seen as a jaunty kind of fellow. Whereas Oppenheimer is quite severe and intellectual and you might even say noticeably Jewish in his intellectual manner. And Feynman, one of the youngest guys there. So young, Feynman. Clearly How brilliant. old would he be? 20, he'd barely be. What, 44 we're talking here, or 43? 44, yeah? 
one of the central themes of the movie is Oppenheimer's complicated feelings about his work on the bomb. On the one hand, rightly, it's a triumph of science, of very motivated high-speed science. Of course, all of the scientists... See, this is the thing, isn't it? They're not stupid people, they're very clever people. Mm-hmm. Every one of them completely understood that they're building a weapon, a bomb. Oppenheimer was very unhappy that he had no real say in how the bomb was going to be used. Perhaps that was naivety on his part. I don't know. But there is a scene in the movie where Gary Oldman is playing Truman. Brilliant. Yes. And Oppenheimer has been invited to go see Truman. And Oppenheimer is sort of wringing his hands and saying, I've got, I feel like I've got blood on my hands. Truman is is this is this before or after he's, he's given his delivered his destroyer of worlds kind of self indulgent self pitying kind of the I have become destroyer of worlds quote from the Sanskrit Bhagavad Gita that he'd translated is something that we don't think he said at the time really but ah, but right. but he said he thought at the time because I think I, know, I think they depict it in the movie at the time when the Trinity worked he just turned to his brother and said it worked. Ah, So this more prosaic kind of idea, I think, was something he spoke of later as something he he thought or felt poetically. So he meets Truman. Is this is this before he's up before the congressional hearings or after? I think it before. I think it's before. Yeah, I think it's before. This thing about there being color sequences and black and white sequences is partly, of course, to do with when it happened. But I think cool. I think by Nolan. But it's also, and I saw Nolan talk about this, the colour sequences are from Oppenheimer's point of view. They are his... Yeah. They're his voice, really. And the black and white sequences are the bits that are recorded. They're historical. They're things that we know happened because we saw Nice. Nice. But he's meaning Truman. He's saying, I feel like I have blood on my hands. In the movie, Truman says that the Japanese... They were not thinking about who made the bomb. They're thinking about me, who dropped the bomb. I think in the in the book, I think he might have said something like, think about the blood that's on my hands kind of thing. And then as Oppenheimer is leaving, we overhear Truman saying, don't let that crybaby back in here. <laughs> Before he's done that, he takes a tissue out of the box. and doesn't just pass it to Oppenheimer. He kind of waves it or swings it in front of him like a toy kind of thing, whilst having a very condescending kind of grin, almost like a Cheshire cat grin on his face. So, I, well, it's an amazing moment where I think uh, Ullman just really captures that kind of slightly intense cross-eyed power and uh, intensity of Truman. And the cruel way that he communicated to Oppenheimer that you need to man up about these things. Uh, Do you think Truman was right? I'm inclined to think Truman has a point, although terribly expressed. I, well, not the most sensitive way to express it, but I mean, I, 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 it's a three-hour movie. As you can see, there's huge amounts of stuff that Nolan didn't dig into. He, you know, he has to make a choice. But we didn't really dig into Oppenheimer's level of self-involvement, uh, which we saw more in his, his student days. His potential narcissism and egotism, and how that all really reflected on how he wanted to involve himself in the consequences of what was actually a team effort, yeah. And, and to sort of make it all revolve around him. I mean, Truman was right. I mean, it was a group effort. It was a governmental effort. He doesn't bear individual responsibility for what, what occurred. So, yeah, there was, there was a level of self-dramatisation there that wasn't necessary, wasn't there? If you were a scientist and you'd been asked to contribute to the Manhattan Project, what would you have said, Paul? What would your action have been? We're going to the desert, to like a little sort of Big Bang Theory kind of village where only scientists live. <laughs> I think first of all on the rider would be there must be air hockey tables <laughs> how about shuffleboard <laughs> shuffleboard well all that kind of stuff definitely apart from that I'm not a demanding kind of fellow so, so you would have had no moral or ethical qualms about creating a doomsday weapon depends who for I mean <laughs> I wasn't suggesting you were being approached by Heisenberg and the Nazis. <laughs> oh, right, okay. So, given a similar situation to Oppenheimer, no, I'd have no qualms about it whatsoever. And I think very few of them did. I mean, Feynman had no publicly stated qualms about what he did, did he? To me, the point is, the bomb is somewhat inevitable, isn't it? Again, it is. once you've realised that a chain reaction is possible, 
and that the energy available. Someone is going to make it. And on that realisation, especially if you're in a war, you'd better make it quicker than they do. I think so, yeah. yeah. I don't think you have a choice. I think you've got to do it. It's an old tram tracks, kill one or kill five kind of situation, isn't it, really? Obviously, once it's made, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. Well, you can if you bomb the entire world and get rid of all the memories. True. There is always that. There is always that. Set fire to the atmosphere. That will sort it out. No more bombs. But I think the point I'm trying to make, though, is the genie is already coming out of the bottle before Very you realise so, it. Yeah. yeah. It's too late. Once you realise there's a genie, it's almost certainly too late. Yes. At the very end of the Once movie. you realise that Schrodinger's cat could be a death metal cat, then there's a world in which it is a death metal cat, yeah. <laughs> Before you've opened the box. In a way, there's two conclusions to the movie, I think. One is yeah. that Straws loses his gambit, really. He tries to get himself into political office by... He succeeds first, but then it comes back in, doesn't it? It's a nice bit of vengeance for Oppenheimer. He get, yeah, Sorry, he gets uh, Oppenheimer's security status yeah. rescinded. But Oppenheimer, nonetheless, he keeps his status as an academic, but he can no longer be a government advisor. So in very much, in very much the same way, I mean, presumably this is the McCarthy era, isn't it, we're talking about here? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. In, in very much the same, you know, the anti-communist terror or fear swept through Hollywood. I imagine it swept through academia too, didn't it? It's what we're seeing here, the same effect. Straws tries to go for political office and fails because it emerges, emerges that yeah. he'd been manipulating this whole thing with Oppenheimer. Is it clear in the movie how it emerged or not? Or is it waved away kind of thing? The key part is where the scientist, I think was name, name was Hill, played by Rami Malek, I think. Yes. Testifies in the congressional hearings. That's right about how that had happened and what they'd done to Oppenheimer. That's really when it all turned for straws. It's revealed that he's been obsessing about this conversation with Einstein that Oppenheimer had had and assuming that he'd badmouthed them in some way. He hadn't talked about him at all. Einstein was just in a world of his own. But the final lines of the movie, I think, are when Oppenheimer is talking to Einstein again and they're talking about this idea of setting the atmosphere alight, igniting the atmosphere. At the end, Oppenheimer says that perhaps he did, alluding to the fact that he has changed the world. Irreversibly. Again, partially this is more of his egotism and narcissism. But we have... Sarcastically. Every one of us has now lived our entire lives in a nuclear era under constant threat of six minutes from world annihilation. Hmm. My only concern is that if I go, I have to go fairly peacefully. I don't want to go... I'd like to go quickly. I'd like my bones to just sort of evaporate that's possible. Well, you want to drive to the nearest... Drive to the strike zone. Yeah, but I think in the UK, with H-bombs, I think you'd be hard-pressed to not be in the strike zone. <laughs> okay, so ends kind of nicely. As I say, great visuals. I think we've dissected the plot as much as it needs to be, as much as we can do within an hour. Let's talk about the acting. I would have thought this has got to be an Oscar-winning performance from, if not Killian Murphy, then Robert Downey Jr. Can I just list some of the names here? Sure. Matt Damon, Robert Downey Jr., Florence Pugh, uh, Emily Hulk, Blunt, Kenneth Branagh. I mean, it just goes on and on and on, doesn't it? Just the number of big names you've got in this movie is crazy. So you say it's Matt Damon. Well, yeah, it is, obviously. <laughs> Matt Damon coming out of a kind of a hiatus or retirement, not retirement, but he was taking a pause from acting. He'd agreed to with his wife, but he'd given an exclusion for Christopher Nolan calling, which he did. Killian Murphy's performance and dedication to the role and his embodiment of the role. I mean, I think he learnt Dutch to give the, that scene Whoa. where Oppenheimer goes to... That was a nice uh, scene, actually, wasn't it? Where in reality, he had learnt Dutch. Oppenheimer had learnt Dutch in a semester to give a lecture in quantum mechanics. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's in the early part of the movie, where we, I mean, no one's trying to give us an insight into who Oppenheimer is. Kind of an intense, very focused, somewhat surprising individual. So I'm going to have to give it a 9.5 for the acting. I'm going to give it a 9 and not say very much apart from it. It's brilliant. We'll talk about plot. Oh, one more person. Tom Conti as Einstein. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) There we go. Anyway, sorry. 
Plot and screenplay. Yeah, who's that old granddaddy keeps talking to? <laughs> so, plot and screenplay. It's taken from a book that's obviously highly regarded. Mm-hmm. It's therefore pretty tightly plotted. We've seen some of Nolan's work where he's written it, and now we're seeing Nolan making a film of somebody else's story. Nonetheless, it still has the Nolan touches, doesn't it? So you get conversations starting in one location and carrying on when they're on the train and finishing the the next sentence of the conversation is them in the desert. So brilliantly imagined in Nolan's cinematographic style, Mm -hmm. the plot is intricate and political. It's more West Wing than a sort of science documentary, isn't it? Which for me is disappointing, but I think most people will prefer. It's got to yeah, be. Okay, it's so, got to be highly rated. I'm going to give it an eight. I think you should have drawn a flowchart here and said, "What kind of movie do I want to make? Do I want to make a character-based movie that's very much based on the human reactions of Oppenheimer in the face of what he was tasked to do? Do I want to make a history? Do I want to make a documentary, which is slightly different from history? Or do I want to focus on the whole process of scientific discovery and that kind of thing? Or do I want a mishmash of the few? I think he's sensibly avoided a complete mishmash. Because I think it's just too much to try and do all that. For me, it's more history than it is documentary, if that makes sense. I think so, yes. Like, we just, although it is achronological, we, we tend to get things that have happened that are relevant. And he manages to sew them together, I think, in the movie. But the book material, I think, is very much a history, isn't it? And like I say, my preference would have been more about how does Oppenheimer develop as an individual through the process of the scientific discovery. I, 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 the scope of the movie is 50, 60 years of his life, isn't it? For me, I would have boiled it down to just the three years at Los Alamos myself. For me, I think the scope is a little bit too challenging. I'm not saying it's bit off more than can chew, but we just go everywhere in the movie. It is impressive, and it does take you on a real roller coaster ride. But it wouldn't have been my first preference. However, Paul, you're, what you're saying is he should have done a different book. Yes, definitely. He should have chosen okay. a different source material. Huh. All right. My preference. As you say, it is political and it is historical rather than biographical. It's very much focused on what happened as a result of Oppenheim. I would have preferred it more biographical and just more focused in a short time frame on the science. That's not to detract from the screenplay, which is superb. He does tie together knots that otherwise would be left untied. He does bring it together coherently. And he does manage, I think, to say, or to encapsulate how Oppenheim was feeling throughout this rather traumatic experience of being, if you like, initially a hero for a nation, and then potentially being seen as as a persona non grata. So an eight for me, generally, in terms of screenplay. After all that, you agree with me. Okay. <laughs> it's all you gave it, sorry. Should we talk about the science? Is it? Can we do science in a real science? We can, yeah. I mean, there is some science. There's a blast scene, yeah. which is beautifully shot. No uh, CGI. It was all practical effects. Compositing. Computer compositing, but practical effects, yeah. There's some stuff about... No, there isn't much science, is there? So I think we have to score this, anyway. Because it's about developing a nuclear bomb, for crying out loud. Yeah. It can't be that high, can it? I mean, I'll give it a... It can't be that high because, even in terms of character character terms, his successes and the team's successes must have been pivotal in forming his opinions. So we need to know what were those successes... How did he feel about them? We never find that out in this movie. So he needed another source book, didn't he, as well as his primary source. I'll give it a six for science. I'm going to go a bit higher. It's a seven, I think. I think we, we, got, we got some accurate discussion about H-bombs, A-bombs. We got Teller the Hungarian coming in with his ideas. We did get some exposition about the basic ideas in the making of a bomb and how we're going to go about it. Teller, of course, always mad keen to make a hydrogen bomb, even from the outset. Rightly so, I think. (laughs) You're shilly-shallying around with these fission bombs. (laughs) Team Teller. (laughs) So, I don't know what you want to do for final effects, visuals, general score for... We could score the cinematography and the picture and the image. Yeah, and it has to be a 10 from me. It's superb. A 10? You don't think it can get better? No, you'd be hard-pushed to do it on 100 million like you did. Wow. I'll give it a nine. 
Well, this is the film that's going to save cinema, isn't it? This and Barbie. I mean, our showing was packed, completely full. Not that many people wearing Hawaiian shirts in our showing, but lots of people wearing Hawaiian shirts in the cinema house. (laughs) Which I assume is part of the the Barbie side of the Barbenheimer effect. Well, apparently, yeah, apparently it was a thing to do a double bill and go and see both. That's unimaginable Unimaginable to me. (laughs) The director of Barbie's trying to put a spin it saying it's a thoughtful movie. It clearly isn't a thoughtful movie. (laughs) It's just kitsch iron that's 20 years old. It's Greta Gerwig, Paul, is the director of Barbie. I don't know who she is. Is she famous? I think we watched her in one of the movies. Wasn't she in White Noise? Correction for next week, no doubt. Anyway, finally, overall then, Paul... Has Christopher Overall, Nolan saved cinema with a bio? It's a, some greater than parts. It's a nine from me. Oh, no, I'm not going to answer your question. I don't know. I don't think he has. No. I don't think we can save the cinema house. It's, it's, it's on its last legs, isn't it? You yeah, see, so don't think the IMAX is the, the way to see a film. No, I think virtual reality headsets are in the future. Good point. Okay. Well, there's plenty we didn't talk about. This movie, it is good. I think there are failings, though, actually. Yeah. So I'll give it an eight. What, what particular failings would you like to sort of focus on? Lack of science. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think it's a lack I mean, of As science. a scientist, his development as an individual is pivotal. It's going to revolve around the science that he does, and we never get to see it, do we? Not so, really. Yeah, it's very little. Yeah, very little. They focus very hard on this whole thing about igniting the atmosphere, which I know yeah. sounds dramatic, and indeed is dramatic when they do it in the trailer and everything. But it was, it's similar. When they were going to switch on the LHC for the first time, mm. there were a bunch of, oh my God, we could destroy the, the universe with the LHC. Do you remember that? No. There were a number of scares that they proposed. One was making... Miniature black holes, micro black holes. Yeah, that's a thought I've had independently. I didn't realise it was a it was yeah, it was a, a common worry. It was a thing people were talking about in the newspapers. The black hole thing is not really a big deal because black holes that small boil away with the Hawking radiation. The one that was much more interesting, I thought, was the strangelet kind of catastrophe, where they make a strangelet particle, and by its very nature, when it touches other matter it converts them into strangelets yes and so you get this cascade chain reaction strange until we converted everything into strange particles which which are quite heavy yeah i'm not sure what effect we'd have but i'm sure it wouldn't have been good (laughs) apparently that's thermodynamically about as likely as creating an ice cube in a furnace It was in the news. But you're right, okay. I mean, this movie lacks a focus on the events of science. It would be like watching a movie about Michael Phelps without seeing a swimming race, wouldn't it? It's, it's kind of like not the reason why we're watching about a movie about a scientist, is it? Or who is that guy who cheated at bicycling? Oh, uh, Alexander Armstrong. Mike Armstrong. No. Lance Armstrong. Lance there we Armstrong. <laughs> Alexander Armstrong is, of course, the BBC actor. <laughs> Sorry, Alexander. You just defamed Alexander Armstrong, who... Sorry, Xander. For, as far as we know, for. has never cheated at <laughs> Don't a bicycle race. On a, on a bicycle, bicycle race. As far as we know. Hasn't, yeah, category hasn't done that. Well... Oh, it sounds like I'm denying it now, doesn't it? Okay. <laughs> right. Paul, back now to... I walked past Xander's house, actually, not for the other week. Really? Mm. Look at you, hobnobbing with the well, Richard my, my, my friend said, oh, Xander lives on this road. I said, oh, really? So can you guess which house? And there was, was actually a car with the registration XAN. So I thought, is it that one? Didn't you? Yeah, it was. <laughs> there we go. What are we going to stream for a movie next week? Oh, righty, righty, righty. Okay. You look confused. Uh, what do you think I was going to do at the end of the podcast? Okay. I've written them down somewhere. Here they are. Are you ready? Yes. So you've got three choices. I'm listening. Do the one you can read. <laughs> <laughs> Seems to be Persona, is that right? No, it's Possession. Possession. Okay, right, I can see how I've written that. Okay, Possession, yeah, Possession is the first one. I presume it's our movie, probably recently on Second one is Lola. L-O-L-A, Lola. Yeah, but not The Kings. The third one is The Mitchells versus The Machines. I think it's an animated film about people dealing with 
robots. Lola is based in, I think, the Second World War. And so, Uh although it's fictional, I hope, I think we should continue the theme, the World War (laughs) II theme, and watch Lola for next week. Let's do that. It's available on Google Play and Amazon Video to rent. So do join us for the the ultimate episode of Series 3 of Drop-Eye Cinema, episode 52 next week, where we were reviewing the estimable Lola. Lola. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Ciao for now. See you on the next one. Bye. Thank you.